All right, welcome to the Avenus History Podcast. This right here is Season 2, Episode 37, Questions on Doctrine, Part 1. Last time we talked about the creation of the Seventh-day Adventist Bible commentary in the early to mid-1950s, and just how insightful and fun that whole story was. I, I really enjoyed it. We are going to be getting back on our on our rails here for this story and continue progressing forward. But, you know, since so many Adventist churches have a Bible commentary and so many Adventist homes at least used to have a Bible commentary, a set of that somewhere in there, I thought it would be great just to, just to pause for a minute, get in a little boat, go to that island, uh, that narrative island, and just talk about that. It, it doesn't kind of it didn't connect us to to the whole 1888 reexamine thing, and it doesn't connect us to the, what we're going to be talking about right now, which is questions and doctrine. But it's just it's a wonderful story. It's this wonderful moment in Adventist history where we have a scholarly community coming together to write this thing for the first time. And uh, yeah, you know, I enjoyed it. So if you haven't heard it, go listen to that episode. It won't help you with this episode at all, but. Uh, I, I personally found it a really delightful episode. I'm rambling a little bit here. We're going to get into this thing. We're going to talk about doctrine today and specifically about questions about that doctrine. So I'm sitting here and I'm turning the pages of the 50th anniversary edition of Questions on Doctrine. Our friend Michael Campbell organized an event at the seminary to mark the occasion in 2007. People came and they made presentations both in favor of and against questions on doctrine. And I was there. Woo! In fact, that was the first time Greg Howell and Michael Campbell, who both co-host the Adventist Pilgrimage podcast, uh, it's the first time that Greg and Michael and I were ever in the same room. Didn't know each other. <laughs> Didn't talk to each other that, that I'm aware of. Uh, we were just there in the same room, the same event. I was a young seminary student. I didn't know much about QOD. That's kind of a shorthand for questions on doctrine, if you didn't figure that out. I just knew that this event, this 50th anniversary of the publication of a book, was a big deal. I mean, 50 years later, people are still worked up enough about this book to present for it and against it. It's kind of incredible. And, you know, it's incredible, I guess, to me that, that in 2007, Adventists were still worked up about a book that can I say at that point, definitely true today, I think, most Adventists had never read. Many of them had never heard of it, okay? But most have never read it. Now, clearly, things have calmed down, but you'll still find people on the internet who are worked up about this. I know that's shocking. You'll still find people on the internet who are worked up about this, and and it wasn't too long ago that this was a really, really, uh, it, was, it was a landmine in a church. I mean, even this, even the, the run-up to this 50th anniversary, 50 years, guys, 50 years, even the run-up to this, there was a debate about whether questions on doctrine should be republished. Are we just going to open up old wounds are we just gonna? Are we? Are we tempting fate that we're gonna start this thing all over again by publishing this? Right, like this is the concern that that some people had. 
that we should just let sleeping dogs lie. Let's not commemorate it. Let's not touch it or talk about it at all. Let's just let this anniversary slip on by. Um, but I'm, I'm thankful that it existed. I'm thankful that it happened. Because if you pick up this 50th anniversary edition of QOD and you turn it to George Knight's historical introduction, you'll find this sentence. Quote, Questions on Doctrine easily qualifies as the most divisive book in Avenus history. End quote. How's that for a topic sentence? Now, if we could get George back on here, I mean, I, I don't want to quibble, but I just wondered, um, it's definitely, I think, the, well, it's divisive within Adventism, okay? Divisive within Adventism. Um, I would say, though, there's, there's probably some Ellen White books that have been more fundamentally, or I should say Ellen White statements that have been more fundamentally divisive than QOD. Um, but of course, Ellen White didn't send, set out to be divisive, and neither did the authors of QOD. Um, but I'm just saying there's a lot of avenues who fight about Ellen White quotes. Okay, that, that's all I mean by that. And if, it just kind of makes me wonder, like, how do you decide what the most divisive book is? To be sure, QOD, hugely divisive, and especially if you're going to exclude some of Ellen White's comments that people take and run with and form communities around and go to war over, then definitely QOD is the most divisive book in Adventist history. Now, Knight goes on describing the run-up of QOD, says it's, it's, quote, a book published to help bring peace between Adventism and conservative Protestantism, but that... Its release prolonged alienation and separation to the Adventist factions that grew around it. End quote. Now, Russell Standish stood up at the QOD conference in 2007 and he said this I have often pondered whether we could possibly be more disobedient and even greater failures than the Jewish church, God's chosen church, during his earthly sojourn. Standish, these, these were the stakes. QOD just might possibly have been the moment Adventists crucified Jesus. Whoa. He, he concluded his presentation by saying this. Our beloved church is, in 2007, in dire straits. We are deep, deep in the Amiga of apostasy. Years later, Herb Douglas, who, like Standish, was on hand in those days when QOD was being written and received and all of that, he appeared before the Sacramento Central Church. All right, here's what he had to say during that presentation. Now, something happened in 1957 that changed the course of Adventist thinking for more than a century. I want you to be very clear that there's much in that book that's very valuable. Very valuable. Many chapters that are very valuable. We're talking about certain core chapters that changed the entire history of theological training in the last 60 years. The colliding of two different theological systems caused the 1957 theological earthquake. This is a story of stretching the truth, getting things wrong, 
and how sometimes our best intentions to protect the thing we love sometimes end up hurting the thing we love. Now, for those who just woke up and looked around the fine people arguing over a what is now a 70-year-old book, I mean, almost a 70-year-old book, that they've never heard of, allow me to explain. First of all, get a glass of water because you should never venture into theological controversies while you are dehydrated, okay? That's a pro tip. You're welcome. Secondly, the full title of QED might help you make sense of these things because we often speak of questions of doctrine or QED, but its full title is Seventh-day Adventist Answer Questions on Doctrine, which is just, you know, a real page-turner. real page-turner. Uh, so basically, some evangelical Christians had some questions about what Adventists believe, and the church took the time to write out their answers, and then, thinking that would be helpful, the Adventists involved in formulating the answers decided to publish both the questions and the answers in this book, QED, QOD. That's a little Latin joke for the one of you who actually got that. Anyways, the entire controversy over this book is whether or not those answers that were given and published in that book accurately described what Avenus believed or whether there was some monkeying around to introduce new ideas in order to change the course of Adventism. Now, we're going to begin with a little context. And by begin, I mean like spend most of the rest of this episode on it. So this context is, why were these evangelicals wondering what Avenus believed in the first place? Because by the time we get to the end of this episode, you are going to realize how absolutely magical this whole situation is. Just that that it that it that that these evangelical leaders were even curious to begin with. So the question is why? First of all, this didn't begin with just any group or individual evangelicals. It was Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a giant on the evangelical slash fundamentalist scene in his day. All right. Donnie G. Can we call him that? Anyone mind? Oh, he's been dead for 62 years. Okay, never mind. We can call him that. Donnie G. He enrolled at Biola back then, you know, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. That's what Biola stands for. He, he enrolled at Biola, the university, which was founded, by the way, by the same oil man who financed the publishing of The Fundamentals, which you know, from which the, the fundamentalist movement was named. Now, the first dean at this school was Reuben Torrey, who saw great promise in young Barnhouse and was himself mm, no, no real friend of Seventh-day Adventists. Okay? Barnhouse went on to Princeton Seminary, where he learned from the great B.B. Warfield, and there was hardly a major fundamentalist of that day or even early fundamentalist who didn't stop to teach Barnhouse at either Biola or Princeton uh, or a brief stop at the University of Chicago in between. In 1928, Barnhouse took the pulpit of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, which was a post, a pastoral post he would hold for the rest of his life. And one of his first changes, he actually, when he, it's surreal to me as a pastor because the way we handle moving churches, you know, or this interview process is just a little different than what Barnhouse got to go through. Uh, when he was interviewing at 10th Presbyterian, he had more or less a list of demands that if they would be willing to meet them, he would be willing to pastor there. And one of those demands was to install radio broadcast equipment 
in the church so that he can begin a radio program. Now, this was the day for that, okay, because this was uh, just shortly before a little-known Adventist evangelist named H.M.S. Richards did the same thing on the other side of the country, getting that radio broadcast gear. Okay, this was the time when we're when we're ramping up and this religious programming um, is really taking effect. In fact, a number of Tories students would all go into radio and be among the first wave of radio preachers in their day. Okay, and Barnhouse was one of them. Now, Barnhouse was renowned as a Bible teacher, probably in the fullest sense of that word. Okay, his first three and a half years at 10th Presbyterian were spent going through the book of Romans verse by verse. That's how he preached, and that's how he saw his role as a pastor. I am an expository preacher. I, I, I'm the, the root of that is not exposed, like in the sense of like he's, uh, uh, like I don't know, critical or something, but uh, to to explain verse by verse, word by word, thought by thought, going carefully. And that's uh, in in um, opposition to like a thematic preacher, someone who's like, let's talk about the theme of the second coming or salvation. We're going to go from book to book to book to book in the course of this sermon. That's not how expository preaching works. You pick a passage, you talk about that passage carefully, line by line, all the way through. That's that's how Barnhouse saw his ministry. Administration or visiting church members were for others to do at the church. That wasn't his business. He was a preacher and a teacher. And as a result of his growing fame, he was he was barely at his own church, okay? One member was tired of it at some point, told Barnhouse, in front of people, told Barnhouse that the church wasn't paying his salary so that he could be gone six days a week. Which, you know, I mean, maybe there's something there, you know? But Barnhouse replies, quote, I was under the impression that 10th Church hired me to work for the Lord. That is what I am doing here and elsewhere, and whatever is done benefits the church, end quote. Now, in a technical sense, Barnhouse wasn't exactly wrong. His church was growing, you know, with, even though he was only there a little bit of the time. Um, and in 1940, his congregation, he asked for it, and the congregation gave him approval to be gone a full six months of the year in order to preach elsewhere. He had 50 people working for him at one point, looking after his radio ministry, his magazine, or helping to organize his conferences, helping him write. He was writing screenplays at one time, uh, answering his mail. And, and he, would get, he guessed that during this time, he preached 400 sermons a year. You know how many Sundays there are in a year? Yeah, you know, 52, right? But he's preaching 400 sermons a year, and very few of them are at 10th Church. Very few of them. Now, while he was fairly typical as a dispensationalist who believed in the rapture and these different kind of ages and all that, his emphasis was on the core truths of Christianity. He disliked how some Christians endlessly debated Bible prophecy because Barnhouse felt that they were more interested in the signs of the times than in the substance of Jesus' return. It was like a game. Let's figure out the headlines, not what the headlines are actually pointing towards. He would say, quote, if you don't know 1 John 3, 3, I am not interested in your theory of prophecy, end quote. Obviously, as you can imagine, he wouldn't think too highly of Adventists in this regard, but the comment was mainly aimed at his fellow fundamentalists who were way too concerned about these eschatological or end-time theories. Now, Barnhouse differed from other fundamentalists in his intellectual values as well. His youngest daughter, Dorothy, described an early family worship as him 
this is just so incredible. As him reading a verse in Hebrew or Greek, depending on where it was found, when and Donald Jr. would read the same verse in Latin, another son would read it in Martin Luther's German, another daughter reading it in French, uh, mother reading it in Spanish, and finally Dorothy herself, because she's the youngest, you know, only reading it in the King James. Barnhouse would then explain the importance of the verses that they had all just read, and they would close with a song as, uh, you know, for example, something from Bach. He would never, never, Dorothy says, allow them to sing a hymn like In the Garden, which, by the way, is my favorite hymn, which Barnhouse considered, quote, that trashy music. <laughs> I just can't even. <laughs> so, you know, he wasn't a very revivalistic preacher. He was a very intellectual preacher. And that's just his style. Barnhouse thought communists should be deported or electrocuted. And that Catholics had infiltrated 77% of the FBI, which, by the way, prompted the FBI's legendary director, J. Edgar Hoover, to quickly deny it publicly now, the fact that Hoover would even respond to something like this is a testimony to Barnhouse's growing national importance. People are listening to him. And when he died, Billy Graham said that Barnhouse, quote, knew the scriptures better than any man I ever knew, end quote. Now, this early Barnhouse drank deeply of fundamentalism. Like I said, there wasn't a, a major fundamentalist alive that Barnhouse didn't see speak in person at some point during these formative years. And, and while he did show great promise, uh, part of the problem was that he was smarter than many of his peers, and unfortunately, he knew it, and so did they. He never, But he was never like a great student. He, he never got a degree from Biola or from Princeton. In, in pastoring, he blasted, quote-unquote, liberals, okay, so severely that his own denomination brought charges against him. Just settle down, dude. Now, he was an exceptional communicator, exceptional, but he was a rather, I don't know, average fundamentalist when it came toward, came to his militant attitude to what he considered error. Now, what I mean by the average fundamentalist, I mean, he, he was zealous to fight, just like every other fundamentalist. He didn't distinguish himself, except maybe in, in the intensity in which he, he fought other people. But that was it wasn't an area where he bucked the fundamentalist trend as he did with his intellectualism and, and in other places. Now, fundamentalism was changing by the 1940s. In 1947, we see Fuller Theological Seminary being founded and Christianity Today being published, which are which are cornerstones of what would become the neo-evangelical movement. Now, these new evangelicals agreed with the fundamentalists in just about every issue because many of them, of course, were raised fundamentalist, but they were generally tired of the short-sighted militancy and fundamentalism, the King James onlyism, and and sometimes even the verbal inspiration. They were kind of moving away from that, and there was a number of other quibbles, and they they were trying to distinguish themselves because they think that fundamentalism kind of lost its way. It became focused on just a few core issues. It had nothing to say socially to the world around it. Now, of course, these new evangelicals, are, are we still have them today. We, we look at them, I think, as a society, at least here in the West, we look at them as kind of like the, the arch conservatives. We don't realize that they exist as, they are conservative, but they exist by because they distinguish themselves from a group that was even more conservative than they are, okay? 
So in the 1950s, you have a young Billy Graham. He began practicing. Of course, Billy Graham was raised a fundamentalist, educated to be a fundamentalist. He began practicing what he called cooperative evangelism in his meetings. And, and he would include members of, this is what that meant, he would include members of non-fundamentalist churches as, as local leaders who would help prepare for his crusades. Now, Graham, of course, like I said, had been trained as a fundamentalist, and this policy created a huge rift between Graham and the fundamentalists who were like, no, we don't work with these people. They're liberals. They're, they're, they're not real Christians, you know, all these sort of things. And Graham was considered something of a, um, you know, of kind of leading a betrayer of the faith of sorts. But this was the way that this neo-evangelical movement was, this emerging movement was, was heading. Now, with all of this going on, in 1949, Barnhouse had started his, another radio uh, series of broadcasts going verse by verse through the book of Romans. Uh, you may remember, he, that's how he started preaching at his church for the first three and a half years. Now he's going to do it on the radio here in 1949. And if you're sitting there saying, gee, Romans is a pretty big book. It sounds like that might take a while. You, my friend, would be right. It was a project Barnhouse would spend the rest of his life on. Now, these broadcasts here caught the attention of the Adventist uh, named Tobias Edgar Unruh, Edgar to his friends, who was president of the East Pennsylvania Conference. Now, Unruh wrote a letter of appreciation to Barnhouse at the end of November 1949 for his broadcasts on Romans, and Barnhouse about flipped out. I'm going to get to that reaction in just a second, but first it's worth observing that, especially in this emerging age of radio and television, and of course now we have the internet, it, it's amazing that Unruh caught these, these broadcasts uh, rather quickly after, after Barnhouse had started them. And later on, of course, as we're going to see, the evangelical side noticed some Adventist broadcasts going on. I mean, sometimes we, we, we talk about things as if, you know, we're only talking to our own people, whatever that people may be. But people are always watching from the outside. People are always watching from the outside. And that's how this story actually begins. Because Unruh was curious. You know, Unruh's not a Calvinist. He's an Adventist. But nevertheless, kind of keeping tabs on what these popular speakers in their day are saying and doing. And Barnhouse was certainly a popular speaker in his day. Now, back to Barnhouse flipping out. To Barnhouse, the whole book of Romans stood to refute that babble of legalism known as Seventh-day Adventism. Grace, not law, is the message of Romans. So Barnhouse was shocked to hear from an Adventist leader who appreciated his interpretation of Romans. Unruh would later describe it this way, quote, In his reply to my letter, Barnhouse expressed astonishment that an Adventist clergyman would commend him for preaching righteousness by faith, since in his opinion it was a well-known fact that Seventh-day Adventists believed in righteousness by works. He went on to state that since boyhood he had been familiar with Adventists and their teachings, and that in his opinion their views about the nature and work of Christ were satanic and dangerous. He concluded by inviting this strange Adventist to have lunch with him, end quote. Well, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, Barn Barnhouse would later confess that he grew up near Mountain View, California, where an Adventist colony had been centered around the Pacific Press. Fun fact, Google would later buy the Pacific Press campus in 2011. So you can go there today. You can see Pacific Press high up on the building. 
above the doors, the main doors, and uh, and go inside if you can get inside and meet some Google employees or Microsoft employees. They both occupy the campus. Anyways, as as often happens in Avenus colonies, you have a class of people who resent the Avenus presence in their midst. Now, nowhere are I, I believe nowhere are Avenus more misunderstood than in their own backyards, because Barnhouse grew up right next to a whole bunch of very prominent Avenus. And yet he had this notion that Avenus believed Satan was the sin bearer and that Avenus had to keep the Sabbath to be saved and that they believed in righteousness by works. I mean, you 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 could you could just go ask them what they believed, right? I mean, they're, they're printing millions of pages of literature not very far from your home. If you wanted to read some, you could. So he's growing up right there, right there in Pacific Press's backyard. And it comes to these uh, misunderstandings about what Adventists believe. Now, Barnhouse would go on later to read books by former Adventists like E.B. Jones, which, of course, only served to confirm him in, in his belief. Barnhouse's teacher, as we've said, Reuben Torrey, only further confirmed Barnhouse in his opinion about Adventists. Tory had, in the late 1890s, written a tract against Adventists after an Adventist coincidentally had written Tory a letter. Now, you know, as you can see in this episode, anytime you write a letter, it seems to be the catalyst for some controversy. <laughs> so don't write any more letters. Anyways, Tory called the Adventist legalists in this tract and accused them of seeking weak Christians. Like That's who they prey upon, the weak Christians. Tory wrote uh, that Adventists are, quote, without liberty in life, and without power and service, they are in bondage and in impotence, end quote. Okay. What I love about this exchange between Barnhouse and Unruh, however, is how Barnhouse invites Unruh to lunch. It's kind of like, hey, thanks for your letter, Edgar. Uh, five seconds ago, I thought Avenus were satanic and dangerous. So how would you like to do lunch? <laughs> you know, it's like... I mean, how do you say that about a, a person and what they believe? You know, I, I think what you guys believe is satanic. Uh, you guys free around noon? Anyways, they never managed to get lunch. Surprise. But Unruh did send Barnhouse a copy of Steps of Christ because that's what Adventists do, I guess. We just we send books to people. Unruh thought that they had developed a, a reasonably friendly correspondence. You know, progress was being made here. And that they had an understanding that Barnhouse would, would kind of suspend his views on Adventists until they had time for a proper chat. But not long after reading Steps to Christ, Barnhouse published a review of it in his magazine, Eternity. Barnhouse recounted receiving a letter from an Adventist leader who appreciated his broadcast on Romans, but that, of course, Adventism, quote, most certainly denies all of the essentials which my teaching seeks to reflect from the Bible, end quote. I mean... Obviously. Then Barnhouse turned two steps to Christ. He called Ellen White. He was this, you know, he was just saying this is what the book is called, and this is who it was written by. He, he says Ellen White is quote the the founder of the cult. End <laughs> quote. It said if if he had found steps to Christ in a used bookstore, he would have glanced at the first page of the preface and quote thrown it aside knowing that it was false in all its parts and as the mark of the counterfeit is, is there on the first page. But because I was expecting to have luncheon with the leader of this cult, I decided to go further, end quote. Boy, how to win friends and influence people. <laughs> it's just, you're going to read one page of the preface, of the preface 
and conclude that it was false in all its parts. <laughs> As the mark of the counterfeit is there on the first page, he says. <laughs> okay. Uh, please don't review my book. Okay. Anyways, he, he, I, look, if somebody wants to offer a thoughtful critique of one of Ellen White's books or any other Avenus book, I, it's good to listen to these things. But I think Barnhouse's review of Steps to Christ is what the French would call utter garbage. Yes, Barnhouse has theological differences with Ellen White. That's fine. That's fine. He objects to her statement that, quote, nature and revelation alike testify of God's love. End quote. Because why does he reject that statement? Because as he put it, quote, there is no testimony to the law, to the love of God outside of the word of God. Nature is a cursed thing. End quote. I think uh, I read somewhere that Barnhouse also did children's birthday parties. Is that right? No one can confirm that for me? Anyways, okay, nature is a cursed thing. Okay, buddy. Fine, that's a point you two can, can disagree on. But it's it's just this incendiary language, this aggressiveness that he insists upon using. Like, why call Ellen White? You're introducing the woman who wrote this book. Why, why call Ellen White the founder of the cult? Just say she's the founder of Seventh-day Adventism or that she just wrote this book. <laughs> And instead of saying Ellen White is, is wrong about something, he says there is, quote, Satanism in this writing, end quote. All right, you disagree with it, but Satanism? And when Ellen notes that the love of God has made us children of God and that this elevates our standing in the universe as human beings, right, because the, the blood of Jesus has been, been poured out on us, we are the object of God's affection, all of this sort of thing, Barnhouse positively sneers. Quote, do you see what is hellishly wrong with that? End quote. Not wrong. Not mistaken. Hellishly wrong. Well, <laughs> Unruh happened to see this uh, issue of eternity. And after that, Unruh put it rather dryly, quote, I saw no point in continuing the correspondence. End quote. <laughs> Nobody blames you, buddy. Nobody blames you. It didn't seem like Barnhouse was really open to a good chat. I mean, he just savage steps to Christ. Steps to Christ! Like the most Christ-centered book that Ella White wrote! Oh, man. Well, that could have been the end of the story. Right, you know, we tried. But it wasn't, because two things happened that catalyzed the course of things that led to QOD. First, first... I'm going to put it this way. I think Barnhouse would definitely not put it this way, but I'll put it this way. He found Jesus. <laughs> of course, he already knew Jesus. He preached about Jesus and all that. But he had something of a little conversion moment. Because in, in 1953, in his New Year's uh, editorial for Eternity, Barnhouse was reminiscing over the 25th anniversary of his pastorate at 10th Church. Has it been 25 years already? I've only been there like 12 times. <laughs> um, he was reminiscing over his 25th anniversary there at 10th Church. And, and about, in particular, a conversation somebody had there with him during that celebration. See, you see, the church had thrown this party to celebrate him. And yet Barnhouse, this guy said, looked miserable. Like, try to, try to cheer up, man. Just look happy to be here. Uh, anyways, pointing the guy pointed to the church committee that had organized the shindig and said, quote, those fellows certainly love you, 
end quote. And then the man walked away. He was trying to get Barnhouse to cheer up because these people over there, they love you, man. But this leaves Barnhouse stunned. He had to get some air. He walks outside and, and he says, quote, I walked out under the trees thinking about that statement. I knew that I loved many people, but I had never thought about their loving me, end quote. Now, that got Barnhouse thinking. He recounted in this issue of eternity his very first day of school in first grade when, after being in first grade for all of two hours, his teacher realized that he was bright enough to go to second grade, so they shifted him up. Congratulations, you got promoted after spending two hours in first grade. Barnhouse wrote, quote, that year, the first graders hated me because I was the smart kid that had gone ahead. And the second graders hated me because I was the first grader that had come in to show them up by me being there. At least I thought they hated me. So I developed the practice of doing my work in an attitude of not caring what anybody in the world might think. And I rather carry that attitude through my life. But that night, listening to the kind things that were being said, I began to think that perhaps... A whole, a whole lot of people did love me. And suddenly I saw that this was going to make a big difference in a lot of things, end quote. There is something so, so sweetly innocent about this towering fundamentalist realizing that he needed to allow people to love him. Isn't there? Like, come here, you big bear. Bring it in for a hug, buddy. You're going to be okay. Well, we're going to go on the to him one more time in this article. Quote, early in my ministry, I conceived the idea that I must strike out against all error wherever I saw it. I used only one kind of ammunition. I hit an error wherever I saw it. If it was in Christian science, Unitarianism, or in Romanism, I swung hard. If it was in some fundamental leader with whom I had a 95% agreement, I swung hard at that 5%. I want to have a Christian fellowship with a much wider circle of people. I want to make my circle of Christian fellowship on the basis of the fact that a man is going to be in heaven with me. And if he is, then why not get a little closer together here and now? Give him the benefit of the doubt on the things that we do not agree upon. I believe that many of us have been the victims of religious McCarthyism. Just as the senator from Wisconsin has yelled communist at anyone, almost anyone to the left of center, so there are men who have yelled modernist at anyone who disagreed with them on points which are certainly secondary. I am trying to think ahead. Is it possible that a few Russian bombs may drop on one of our great cities in the next few years? If so, working side by side in the rubble, I shall hope to call out on a Sunday morning, let all who believe in the Lord Jesus come here. I have a loaf of bread, and I am going to tear off a small piece and remember him. I will pass this loaf around to the crowd and let all who will take his portion. And it would be good if we didn't have to wait until the bombs fell. End quote. You know, it'd be nice for him to realize 30 years ago that fundamentalists were throwing rocks at anything that moved and were cannibalizing each other. As he said, like, even if I had... 95% agreement with somebody, that 5%, I would swing at it and I would swing hard. But I guess it's better to be late than never. Barnhouse's new desire to have a better relationship with other Christians didn't mean that he and Unruh would become best friends, okay? Barnhouse and Unruh, as far as I can tell, never had that lunch. 
but it did open Barnhouse's heart to trying again someday. It, it, it cracked it open. In fact, Barnhouse would actually go on to be part of a, a National Council of Churches event, which were the liberals, okay, never be seen dead with them. He started, you know, just cracking open these doors. Didn't change his theology, but just, I want to have a better relationship with other Christians. If we're going to go to heaven together someday, I'd like to get them to know, get to know them a little bit better down here. Now, Barnhouse's 1953 New Year's resolution wouldn't have been enough to change things on its own. It's all good and fine. You're a little bit of a different person now, but you know, having us aren't knocking at your door <laughs> after after what happened the last time. Now, that's where the second catalyst comes in. Barnhouse had a young protege, somebody who he no doubt saw a bit of himself in, you know, a super bright young person who's zealous named Walter Martin. And Walter Martin had written a few books about cults. He's writing another book about cults. And, and he occupied a position at Zondervan, huge Christian publisher, and his position was called Director of the Division of Cult Apologetics, which is just a weird title. <laughs> uh, you know, look, conservative American Christians were incredibly curious and worried about deviant Christians like those Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and, you know, Adventists. Conservative American Christians were fixated on the idea of cults beginning in the 1950s. It would later become something of a hobbyist ministry. Okay, you still find people doing it today, but it's not it's not like the biggest names in 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 Christian ministries and evangelical ministries today are kind of doing the same thing. They're not. It's kind of been kicked down a few notches for uh usually like mid-level or low-level ministry leaders. They'll they'll pick up the mantle of trying to identify cults and refute cults and fight cults and you know, so it's still around. It's just kind of more of like a hobby today than it was. Uh, Barnhouse and, and Martin were at the top of the game in the 1950s, so they embraced it. This was, this was a high-level ministry to do back then, um, but today it's more of a hobbyist thing. You might remember the evangelical YouTuber Alan Parr making waves in late 2020 by calling Avenus a cult. You know, that stirred up a, a little bit online. But from the 1950s to the 1980s, the anti-cult movement captured the attention of many, many Christians in North America, the material for Martin's 1955 book, by the way, the, which is called The Rise of Cults, came from some lectures he gave at Shelton College in New York as part of their course on non-Christian religions and cults. Okay, It shouldn't be surprising that the school motto at Shelton College was training Christian warriors. Can't think of a better fundamentalist slogan for your school. They came from the lectures that he presented there and in elsewhere. Right, This was a thing. You get on the preaching circuit and you go around the different churches telling people about cults and educating and informing them and teaching them how to fight the cults and these sort of things. This was a big ministry back then. Well, why this fascination with cults, however? Because, as Martin explains in Rise of the Cults, quote, cultism is on the march all around us, end quote. Okay, well, all right, cultism is everywhere. They're marching around us. What is a cult exactly? Well, Martin defines cultism as, quote, the adherence to doctrines which are pointedly contradictory to Orthodox Christianity and which yet claim the distinction of tracing their origin to Orthodox sources, end quote. Okay. Actually, a really intriguing definition of cults. I mean, very, very specific. Uh, so cults are groups which claim to be historic 
Orthodox Christians, but which are not. They're phonies. They're pretenders. They 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 walk around saying, "Yeah, we're good Christians. We're we're you know we're part of the stream of Christian history. We're not some innovation." Okay, Adventists did this. Um, you know, we're recovering the Sabbath, which has been lost. You know, they didn't see the Adventists didn't see themselves as just newly arrived on the scene. And of course, Mormons had their explanation for why they popped up in the in the early nineteenth century. Everybody has an explanation, like why now? Of course, Protestants in, in Martin Luther's day had an explanation too, much like the Adventists. We're we're dusting off things that have been lost. We're recovering the truth, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, but the point is, everybody has an origin story where they can trace their thread through Christian history back to the very, very beginning. Everyone wants to have roots in Christian history. And so a cult for Walter Martin was anybody who claims to have these roots in Orthodox Christian history, but doesn't, but doesn't. And we're going to find the people who are pretending to be Christian, but really are not. Okay. You know, somewhere you can imagine the Pope reading Walter Martin's book about these these groups, these cults that that are claiming to be historic Orthodox Christians, but which aren't. And somewhere the Pope is reading this, and he's he's like, hmm, that's really interesting. You say you're a Protestant, Martin? You're one of these groups that <laughs> that popped up in the 16th century or whatever, and 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 you're and you're you're claiming to represent Christian Orthodoxy, hmm? Right, because that's kind of what the Pope said, the the Roman Church said about the Protestant reformers. You guys are innovators. You guys just got here. Uh, you're claiming to be Christian, but you're not part of the stream that we're a part of, the stream of Christian of Orthodox Christian history. Of course, according to the Catholics, right? Like we're defining what orthodoxy is uh, based on the church fathers and things like that. Um, anyways, I just the irony of it is just delicious. So basically, we're Protestants are now doing this to themselves, and it didn't start in the 1950s. Okay, Protestants have been doing this to themselves for a long time. Who best represents the truth? So there are a lot of cults. There are a lot of cults. But among these are what Martin called the Big Five. Oh, yeah. We need some, like, awesome, I don't know, NBA pregame music going on right now. The Big Five. First, we got up the Jehovah's Witnesses. Woo! Then we got Christian Science. Then we got then we got Mormonism. And then there was a group that Martin called Unity. And then... Coming in at number five, we have all the way from Battle Creek, Michigan. Oh, wait, no, Tacoma Park, Maryland. We have Seventh-day Adventists. Woo! You know, hey, we're in the top five, guys. Yeah! Now, after introducing the top five, Martin (laughs) says, quote, All of the aforementioned, with the exception of Seventh-day Adventism, deny both the biblical doctrines of the Trinity and the deity of Jesus Christ, end quote. All right, so that's why these five are all wrong. They deny the Trinity and they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. Oh, wait, except Adventists. Why why are Adventists in the list then? Because it's weird. In a book about cults, in a book that names Adventists as one of the big five, Walter Martin, curiously, has very little to say about Adventists in this book. Adventists don't exist outside of the introduction to this book. He's got chapters devoted to the Mormons, chapters devoted to the, you know, to the Jehovah's Witness. Not to Adventists. We're just in the introduction to this book. Which is, it's just weird. Because despite listing Adventism as one of the big five, Martin here is careful to note 
not a qualification that that makes Adventism a cult, but a difference between Adventism and the other the other in the Big Five. Hmm. Oh, I should say that Adventists do get a footnote here, where Martin writes, "quote The problems connected with the Seventh Day Adventists and their religion are so complex, I have elected not to discuss them in a separate chapter at at this time." since it could not possibly do the subject justice, end quote. So he promised to write a book about Avenus. It's kind of strange. He does mention Avenus in another page or two um, to say that Adventism is, quote, theologically the nearest to orthodoxy and therefore the most difficult to refute, end quote. Okay, not exactly a ringing endorsement of cultness. Martin notes that Avenus believe in the authority of the Bible, the deity of Christ, and the vicarious atonement of the cross. Quote, These truths give Seventh-day Adventism strong support for its acceptance as an evangelical, though misled, sect of believers. End quote. I'm sorry, why are we in this book again? You, you keep saying we're a cult, and then you keep saying nice things about us. I'm getting mixed messages here. What's going on, Walter Martin? It almost sounds like Martin didn't really want to include Adventists in this book. He seems to be going out of his way to talk about how Avenus are different from the other cults that are in the book and, and how we're still wrong, okay? But we, Avenus believe things which are essential, though, to, to Orthodox Christianity. So why are they in this book at all? Well, Martin says, they denied the existence of hell, which, by the way, is not, not true, and, and that they denied the eternal punishment of the lost. Okay, that one's true. Plus... They hold some weird ideas about the atonement because of Ellen White. Doesn't get into that. Ellen White, by the way, a footnote tells us, was, quote, the great leader of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, end quote. That's how he introduces Ellen White to his readers. Notice Martin didn't have to say she was the founder of the cult. See, Barnhouse, you don't have to be a jerk about it. Oh, and Adventist, Martin says, agree with the Jehovah's Witnesses about death being asleep. okay. That's a bad thing, I guess. Martin says it is, however, painful to note that connection. It's like he takes no pleasure in saying that Avenus agree with Jehovah's Witnesses about something. Like it, it kind of, it, it kind of grieves him that there would be a connection between the two. Again, it, it just it reads a little bit like Martin is not eager to put Adventists in this book, but he doesn't know enough about Avenus to to make a decision on this. And because Avenus are popularly held to be a cult. They got to be in this book. Can't just leave them out. So he puts them in the book, but he he feels hesitant to really f throw his weight behind their inclusion in this book. And so he he clearly has real theological objections to Adventism, just like Boss Barnhouse does. But Martin's tone in writing about Adventists is night and day different from the boss. It is far more neutral. It is far more even-handed, even regretful that Avenus have found their way into his little book. Even when Martin mentions the Avenus ministries like Voice of Prophecy on the radio or uh, Faith for Today on television, he can't help but say that VOP and Voice of Prophecy was well-known and that Faith for Today, quote, has enjoyed a favorable reception and for the sake of evangelism remains in the most part true to orthodoxy, end quote. He just, I mean, he mentioned some negative things that he disagrees with with Adventism. Okay, I mentioned those. But he just can't help himself but say positive things alongside them. To Martin, Adventism was complex. 
there were definite things he disagreed with and, and things that he considered cultish. But there was so much of Adventism that was orthodox. It was like when he weighed Adventism in the scales, it came out to be balanced. And, and Martin dearly wanted to get more information about Adventists to see if the scale would tip one way or the other. So he had a kind of like a, a clear mandate to take it in one direction or the other. Either they were Orthodox Christian or they weren't. When the scales are about even, it's, it's just, ah, what do you do with that? So Martin went back in the Barnhouse's files. He read his correspondence with Unruh realized that there was an opportunity to learn more about Avenus, a lead there that had been missed because Barnhouse was, well, Barnhouse. So Martin wrote to Unruh, he's going to take it into his own hands, asked if it were possible to meet with church leaders, with Avenus leaders. Unruh asked the general conference, like, hey, you know, you want to follow up on this? And the church leader said, sure. Now, Unruh um, said, who do you want to talk to? Is there anyone in particular? Martin said, yeah, I want to meet with Leroy Froome because he was familiar with Froome's work, Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers. Froome, in turn, wanted to bring W.E. Reed, who was a field secretary for the GC, as, as Froome's plus one to this party. Martin then decided to bring George Cannon, an evangelical professor of theology. And then Unruh said, so am I ever getting lunch out of this thing? Because <laughs> I want lunch. Anyways, the table was set. The guest list was finalized. For the first time, Adventists and evangelical leaders were going to be sitting across the table from one another about to have an honest conversation about the things which Adventists believed and the, and the preconceptions, maybe the misconceptions, that evangelicals had about Adventists. This was huge, guys, just huge. You just think about all of the moments. I mean, just let your mind drift. This is the part of the movie where we're going to do like this, this uh, montage of, of audio clips from, from previous episodes. And the, 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 Think about the times when early Adventist preachers called out the Protestant churches as, as being a part of Babylon, get out of Babylon, leave those churches, or when the Adventist preachers challenged other preachers to debates or the times when Adventists would enter a new territory and those local Protestant preachers would warn their members about going to those Adventist meetings. Or how, how deeply Adventists wanted to be seen as good fundamentalists in the 1920s. How they wanted the fundamentalists to like them, to be considered fundamentalists by the fundamentalists. And how the fundamentalists and later the neo-evangelicals labeled Adventism as a cult. One of the big five. It was this, this whole story is a long and frustrating and unfulfilling relationship between Adventists and the, and, the, and the Protestant preachers, the evangelical preachers around them. Though it, it's not entirely a, a, a frustrating story. Sometimes they found moments of harmony where they could work together and they had beautiful moments together. But overall, just unfulfilling. Just unfulfilling on both sides. And now, 111 years after the Great Disappointment, finally, an evangelical of great rank was curious enough to come down to Adventist HQ and sit across the table from church leaders and talk about how they see each other. And it all started, it all started because one Adventist conference president took the time to appreciate something a theological opponent, an other, had said. Well, Barnhouse took that compliment. He set it on fire and posted it to his Instagram. 
compliment was repaid six years later when Walter Martin visited the General Conference with, with as open a mind as he could imagine. Now, if Unruh had never bothered to pay his compliment to Barnhouse to write that letter, the history of Avenus relations with evangelicals could have been much, much worse. We're going to get to those meetings between Froome and Martin next time. But in the meantime, go write a nice letter to someone who isn't expecting it. You never know what can happen. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.